Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Justin and Lauren. This week, we'll start with a conversation with Mitchell Murphy, the president of YSA Sydney, and use some of his questions around the latest areas of scientific research as a jumping point for some interesting discussions around geology, some of the outstanding questions about the evolution of life on Earth, as well as some of the difficulties about modelling the impacts of potential climate change and other mass extinctions. This week, we're going to go back to our chat with YSA Sydney's President Mitchell Murphy, recorded at the YSA's National Conference in October. And when we talk to Mitch, we're going to find out from him what he thinks some of the biggest challenges in science are in a number of different areas. I'm going to take his ideas and his questions and use it as a launching point to actually talk about a few specific stories that help outlining, show some of the reasons why there are still outstanding questions in these fields. And this includes geology for this week, but also later we'll be focusing on his questions around the brain and the mind and the learning processes from his experiences as a teacher. But now we hear from Mitch himself as he explains what some of the biggest challenges in his mind remain in science. So why, why, why the human brain? Why the human brain? Yeah. Um, because we still don't completely understand why something that makes us so individual, how that individual actually occurs. And more than just that, I think it's more of a fact that it's self-repairing and you can still lose very little of your actual functionality, even though it is self-repairing. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's, that's mind-boggling, um, how something like that can can come out of nowhere too. Like we, we think we understand things and then suddenly there's this one organ that we don't really understand how it works. We don't really understand how it fixes itself. Um, we don't really understand how we then start to lose control of certain aspects of it. Um, and yet it's the key to what makes us... Human. Yeah, and not just human, but individual, which is something also that's completely different to most other organs in our body, obviously. So I don't know. I, I think that's probably the, one of the biggest ones. Um Maybe that and oh, um, I'm, a, I'm a geologist by trade. So my other one is um, is earth structures. So actually having like a detailed earth history is just phenomenally difficult because of how the earth layers changes and, and all that sort of stuff. So actually getting like a timeline to figure out what was before what is almost impossible. So what, if you want, if you could have like one answer from an overlord AI or alien yeah. or something that knew everything, what would it be for geology then? For geology. Um, I would like a complete understanding of how fluid mechanics works, specifically in the Earth's core, and yep. that would probably require some level of um, complete composition and structure of. Um, because if we could learn complete fluid dynamics, then that would actually answer a majority of our questions in that regard. Um, because we have a rough idea how it works, but when it comes to actually Earth processes and whatnot, we don't understand where the tipping points and um, extremes are in regards to movements of certain things and certain um, changes. Yeah. Cool. to humanity we're only a blip on the geological radar 
of the universe. Now, after all, best estimates are at the moment we have only been around for around 200,000 years as a species in the current state. And of course, the indigenous communities like in Indigenous Australia have had a continuous culture for over 40,000 years, which is great. Our Western recorded history that we have goes back about 10,000 years or so, but all of this is still nothing in the sands of time, literally for the age of the Earth, at around 4.53 billion years old. And for the universe, a whopping at the current estimates, 13.82 billion years. So, given that humanity has only been around for such a little period of time, how on earth do we understand anything about geology? And a bigger question is, okay, so maybe humans are only from around 200,000 years ago, but when did life really start? Now, Homo sapiens are a very complex form of being. We didn't appear out of nowhere. Obviously, we evolved over a long period of time to get to where we are. But for that to happen in the first place, when did life actually start? And this is a question that has boggled the minds of scientists for many, many years. In fact, they thought they had a reasonable understanding of how old humans were. But that's been flipped on its head with some recent research out of University of California, LA, UCLA. So geochemists have actually found some recent evidence that suggests life existed on Earth 4.1 billion years ago. Now, that's very, very long time ago. It's actually also 300 million years earlier than all other previous research had suggested. So, you know, we're already talking about billions of years ago before we even thought life had come about. About 20 years ago, most people thought that life started around 3.8 billion years ago, right? And, and that research published 20 years ago was pretty shocking, and everyone sort of came around to that. But now they're pushing the date back even further to 4.1 billion years ago. Now, why is this important? Well, the reason is that around 3.9 billion years ago, there was a massive bombardment of the inner solar system. This is when our moon developed a lot of its real pockmarks and craters, fending off all kinds of asteroids that, you know, damaged us, hit other planets, built up mass, and also helped, according to some researchers, spark life, but also potentially wipe it out. There's a lot of interest around that 3.9 billion year ago mark. Now, Maybe some people theorize that perhaps life formed before them, but it all got killed off by this massive rain of asteroids. And I'm not talking about the dinosaurs being killed by asteroids. I'm talking about, like, planet being almost surface level from asteroids. So, you know, pretty hard to survive that. But more research has actually shown that, no, really, if all life during that bombardment, then it must have restarted pretty quickly because that despite this big, dry and desolate period of time, uh, 3.9 billion years ago, there was still life. So how on earth do you study that far back in time? How do you get an understanding of what the environment was even like back then? Was it a hellish dry wasteland with boiling surface and planets from all these bombardments? Or was it potentially something a lot more stable and sane? Well, the only way you can study that by staring into the diamonds, or more specifically, zircons. Zircons from Western Australia. So by studying around 10,000 zircons originally formed from molten rock or magma in Western Australia, and since they're such a heavy, durable mineral, um, which is often you know related to the cubic zirconium that's used for imitation diamonds, they actually capture and preserve their immediate environment really well. What does it mean? It means they're time capsules of the conditions around them at the time. 
And so they identified around 656 zircons containing dark specks that could be revealing. And they closely analysed, you know, 79 of them with spectroscopy. And when they looked at them, they actually looked into the structure of these minerals. Now, of these 79, most of them contained pure carbon in two locations. Now, why is pure carbon significant? Well, the carbon contained in the zircon actually has a characteristic signature. It's got a specific ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13 that indicates the presence of photosynthetic life. And think about that for a second. In this diamond, or zircon, from 4.1 billion years ago, there is carbon captured, little flecks of carbon. But that carbon, type of carbon, very specific type of carbon, can only be formed by photosynthetic life. You can only get that balance of a certain ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13 when you have photosynthetic life, which means that in order for that to happen 4.1 billion years ago to get captured into this zircon around it, there must have been this present. So that makes us rethink this very fundamental question on even just how old life is on Earth, and potentially much older by 300 million years than we thought previously. And this is some great research being done with Western Australian zircons at UCLA with the researchers Mark Harrison, Craig Manning and Michelle Hopkins. Now, when life started or how long ago it started is all a very interesting question, but once life begins, obviously there's the charge of keeping it alive. And we talked a little bit about 3.9 billion, ago, billion years ago, potential mass extinctions. But now we actually recognise that perhaps we are what is called the Holocene mass extinction, where humanity, through its actions with pollution and anthropomorphic climate change, have actually caused the deaths either directly through hunting or so on, or indirectly through pollution, the deaths of thousands of species, which is what we've referred to as a mass extinction. And in 1982, Spersky and Raup defined these major extinction or mass extinction events, and it's roughly around the big five. You know, ones in the Cretaceous-Paleogene, the Triassic-Jurassic, Permian-Triassic, Late Devonian, and the Ordovician and Silurian extinction events. But when, in reality, there's actually been a, probably, in total around 25 mass extinction events that we can we can think about, some relating to rising oxygen levels in the atmosphere and the lack of oxygen in the, in the seas or atmosphere as well, as well as things from massive volcanoes or maybe asteroid impacts and a number of other big climate-impacting events. But we really just sealed off humanity in the, the Holocene mass extinction as being the ones who are only directly, biologically taking out other species and driving them into extinction. We thought we were the only ones able to pull off that, in most ways you look at it, not great thing. However, some new evidence has arisen that perhaps there are some mass extinctions that occurred that can actually be traced back to biological causes. And by that, I mean other creatures hunting or eating or outproducing other species into extinction on a mass level. But in one of the first known mass extinctions around 450 million years ago, 
Researchers from Vanderbilt University have identified that maybe there was a more subtle cause. Maybe evolution itself was to blame for this mass extinction. Now, biological organisms can, you know, as I mentioned, can actually really drive mass extinction if they really, you know, put their hands to it. And by doing comparative studies of some of the world's first multicellular organisms, they've strongly supported the hypothesis that Com- the appearance of complex animals capable of altering their environments, which you know, we call ecosystem engineers, were able to actually so outperform other species that didn't have that ability, which actually led to mass extinction. And the reality of that is that these ecosystem engineers, even on a microbial level, and we're talking like really single-celled microorganisms that can dis- that discovered how to capture the energy in sunlight and you know lead to photosynthesis and produce oxygen. That actually killed a large number of other single-celled organisms because before then there wasn't any oxygen in the world. So these these microorganisms were turning sunlight energy into energy and thriving off it, but producing oxygen as the world's first toxic byproduct. It's poisonous to most microbes because they all evolved at that point in an oxygen-free environment, so they didn't know what to do with it. So it was a pollutant to them. It killed them off. And so until other microorganisms developed methods to protect themselves, oxygen was a powerful new energy source for the ones that adapted to use it. But for the rest, it was a deadly, deadly play that that wiped them out. And so that showed how some of these ecosystem engineering microbes actually not only enabled us to live by generating the right conditions that we needed for life to thrive in a more complex way, but at the same time, it really significantly killed off huge swathes of the population. So how do they find us? Well, they, they started going back through the different years, period of time and looking through the rocks of those different areas and looking at the microbes themselves. And they going over about 10 to 15 million years periods, they could actually see that around the time of this extinction, across many different samples from all over the world, they noticed a massive drop-off in diversity of species, which they tied back to the, the actual types of species they were seeing after the fact and the types they were seeing before. And that led them to believe, and because they could reproduce it, independently in lots of different locations it helped validate their hypothesis that in fact it was being caused by these microbes now producing oxygen and killing off their competition and this is a little a little bit for us to think about as well because whilst these microbes were producing a pollutant oxygen at the time it really set the scene for for the rest of life to evolve from there and i'm not saying climate change is good but the interesting part about that is it's going to be fascinating over the next billions of years to see how life adapts and changes to this new more toxic and more deadly environment yes many species are going to die now thanks to our anthropomorphic climate change but there will be new species in their place as life learns to evolve and adapt it's just going to take millions and millions of years and it may not look like anything that we know and recognize today which is a shame but as a biologist it raises a lot of questions about what we might see in the future So we know that the climate is changing, but it's very, very hard to predict and understand how it's going to change, mostly because modelling and understanding the world is not like simply putting something into a a simulator and going, yep, run, great, answer. It's very, very complex with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of variables with the smallest changes resulting in massive propagation changes the further you look out. 
maybe forecasting you know one week ahead sometimes the weather is great on that but now try and predict millions of years ahead and it gets much more dangerous and the area any errors propagate tremendously through but some scientists have actually taken an approach that's a bit different and the Inter- intergovernmental panel on climate change the ipcc has actually just released some uh, some new analysis where they've instead of trying to analyze the whole thing they've looked for 41 specific regional cases original tipping points where where they think there may be abrupt changes in climate due to the increases in climate change. So assuming some global changes, they focused on these 41 potential tipping points where and what it would take to actually cause them to have a big shift. And what they found is about 41 cases of abrupt regional changes in the ocean, sea ice, snow cover, permafrost, and terrestrial biosphere. And many of them, they, they think, will happen when there's global warming of less than 2 degrees. So sometimes that's 2 degrees is presented as a threshold, a safe threshold, but they're saying that some of these tipping points can happen, these abrupt regional changes, in much less than that, which is a bit alarming, certainly. Now, it, it does outline some of the challenges that exist in the modelling, um, but also it does also give us a better idea of what actually may happen, such as the a climate tipping point involving the abrupt ships in sea ice and open circulation panels can also lead to massive changes in vegetation and marine productivity. And they noticed those, obviously, as a, as a pretty typical one. Other ones they looked at looked at major levels of change, abrupt change in Amazon forest, tundra, permafrost, and snow in the Tibetan Plateau. And, you know, once you sort of tip one domino over, the other ones start to change. Now, that's one of the reasons why this modelling is so hard, but at the same time, by breaking it down into different sort of pieces of the puzzle, we can start to analyse the implications specifically for population centres around those tipping points as well. Now, there's a lot of work more to be done here. Climate science is not easy. It's very, very complex. And a lot of the time requires a lot of detailed hard work to build models, and we're constantly refining those models as we go through. But the news is that maybe we need to even rethink the understanding of two degrees as a safe level. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Today we found out about a revised start date for life on Earth, how some of our first mass extinctions were in fact caused by the production of oxygen, and along with how we can actually model climate change impacts. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.